everyone. We hope that you are finding ways to stay positive and connected during this era of social distancing. The world seems to have been thrown into a crazy time that is frightening and bigger than ourselves. We want you to know that we are in this together. In a time where humanity is physically separated but unified in the great hunger down, we are sharing in this moment together. We are with you. With that, we are still dedicated to bringing you ocean content that talks about the strange, the endangered, and the amazing. In today's episode, we are covering the world of ocean seabed mining, how it is a strange opportunity for conservationists, its relationship to our current green technology, and even the COVID-19 pandemic. So, come with us on this deep dive for this episode of... Ocean Science Radio! Welcome to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories of the ocean. I'm ocean science and conservation gunslinger, Andrew Kornblatt. And I'm ocean nerd, aquanaut, and shark scientist, Francis Farabaugh. Today, we are focusing on one of our deepest stories, deep sea mining. Like how it sounds, deep sea mining is mining operations that would take place at the bottom of the ocean. In most instances, about four to 12,000 feet below the ocean surface. On this episode, we will discuss the reasons we are looking at the bottom of the ocean for resources, the environmental impacts of the deep seabed mining on ocean ecosystems, and even the relationship between these ecosystems and the current COVID-19 pandemic. I am Andrew Thaler. I'm a deep sea ecologist and I'm the CEO of a small environmental consulting firm called Blackbeard Biologic. And I work predominantly in policy surrounding deep sea mining, especially environmental policy, as well as education and conservation technology programs. I also run the Deep Sea Mining Observer, which is the only trade journal dedicated to following the developments of the deep sea mining industry. Deep sea mining? That sounds terrible. It's going to tear up the bottom of the ocean. We need to stop this. I think it's important to note from the start, no one has actually mined the deep sea yet. So this is a very rare opportunity in the history of environmental policy and resource extraction where the scientists and the environmental stakeholders actually have a leg up on the industry. Enter the ISA, or International Seabed Authority, which was established to organize, regulate, and control all mineral-related activities in the international seabed. This is the area beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. It is a UN organization that has a mandate to both promote the development of deep-sea mining as a global industry and to protect the seafloor environment. It has all the teeth right now. It is in charge of writing the mining code. So without a mining code, uh, no one can mine in the high seas, so areas beyond the EZs. Obviously, within a country's exclusive economic zone, they can do whatever they want within reason, but functionally speaking, they can do whatever they want. And so that comes down to national law. The ISA is wholly in charge of international law involving resource extraction from the seafloor in areas beyond national jurisdiction. So right now, they have all the teeth. And everyone, member states, NGOs, environmental groups, industry groups, and contractors who actually want to mine are working reasonably well together to come up with a solution that keeps everyone, I mean, everyone's not going to be totally happy with whatever the regulations are, but keep, keep general unhappiness with the result to a minimum. 
This is the first time in human history where conservation scientists and members of industry are able to sit down before a major new industry comes into existence and decide on what good environmental policy and what good environmental baselines there will be before anyone starts extracting. And this is hugely important because the areas that are the biggest targets for extraction are areas known as hydrothermal vents. These are incredibly rare, incredibly biomass abundant ecosystems on the seafloor that host communities that look like nothing else on the planet. And when we discovered deep sea hydrothermal vents in the 1970s, it fundamentally altered our view of what it means to be alive on planet Earth. Hydrothermal vents exist on the seafloor, below what is known as the midnight zone, past where sunlight can penetrate. Life can't rely on sunlight to be the basis of its food web, so no plants that convert sunlight into food. But life uh, finds a way. Yes. Cold seawater enters into these hydrothermal vents and gets heated by magma to temperatures of over 700 Fahrenheit. These thermal vents are rich in sulfur and other chemicals. Bacteria and archaea use a process called chemosynthesis to convert these minerals in the water into energy. It's an entirely different approach to life than the one we normally see on our planet. These initial building blocks develop entire communities of life from the bacterial to the archaea base. Everything from crazy tube worms to bleach white crabs to eel-like zorchid fish have developed a niche in that ecosystem. But you won't just find interesting animals on these smoking sea mounds. Let's kick it back to Thaler. There are also cobalt-rich crusts. So on certain seamounts, you get very, very dense conglomerations of cobalt-rich crusts that are, man, this is going to sound very redundant. They're very rich in cobalt, but they're seamounts. And so they have sort of the kinds of seamount communities you'd expect to find around them. In addition to very valuable resource deposits, they actually have things like tellurium and I think scandium, someone was talking to me about scandium a few weeks ago. There's a lot of scandium on some of these crusts. That's right. Cobalt, barium, silicon, all sorts of rare earth minerals are collected and concentrated in these areas. These minerals are in super high demand because of our use of smartphones and need to convert to renewable electrified transportation. As Thaler so eloquently puts it, There's enough gold in the world right now to satisfy demand without mining any more gold, but we're still mining gold because... It's also a luxury item. Um, whereas with cobalt, cobalt is purely a technological, strategically necessary resource. And we are not producing nearly enough cobalt right now to get to even a 50% electrified vehicle fleet in the next 30 years. This puts companies interested in mining our ocean floor in a very good marketing position. So in a lot of ways, they have tremendously good positive messaging around what they're trying to do. The subtext of that is there's also some very, very vast biodiverse or biomass rich ecosystems that will be impacted by mining the deep sea. No one's mined the deep sea yet. And so a lot of things are very hypothetical. So we can say, you know, comprehensive destruction of a hydrothermal vent biogeographic province would certainly be the worst case scenario for mining a hydrothermal vent. It's not a particularly likely scenario, but if you were to be mining an active hydrothermal vent, and some of the mining companies are looking towards mining active hydrothermal vents, complete local extirpation of the entire hydrothermal vent community would certainly be one possible outcome. But now for a commercial break. Dun, dun. Ocean Science Radio is pleased to announce that we are now officially part of the Speak Up for the Blue podcast network. This network is made up of ocean science-related podcasts, including Marine Science Happy Hour, 
Duogongs and Sea Dragons, which both Francis and myself are currently on. Come listen to us play D&D! And the brand new podcast, Madam Curiosity, by my co-host here, Francis. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Madam Curiosity is a podcast about the historical women scientists, engineers, inventors, mathematicians, educators, doctors, explorers, whose stories you definitely should know, but probably have never heard before. My co-host, sociologist Mallory Fallon, and I are joined by fellow women in STEM to make bad puns, nerd out about fun facts, and talk about the astounding accomplishments of the amazing women in science who came before us. So who was your uh, first episode about? Mary Jane Rathburn, and she's so cool. As a name I hadn't heard of before, I sort of started this journey, and I definitely should have, and the world definitely should have. She was the first woman to hold an official scientific title in the U.S. government. She discovered well over a thousand species. She published well over a hundred publications. She was this less than four and a half feet tall, tiny little badass woman. And I'm so excited to tell her story and everyone else's story who we talk about on the podcast. I'm super excited. It's been a long time in in the works. Well, that episode is out now, and you all and I have to go check it out, but you should also go check out what's up on the Speak Up for the Blue Network and all that it has to offer, and also be sure to share our podcast with all your friends. Now, back to the show. The case for extracting seabed minerals is controversial. The environmental impacts of deep sea mining on ocean ecosystems are not fully understood, and could be irreversible. To talk more about the impacts on deep sea life, welcome Dr. Diva Amon. Hi, so my name is Diva Amon and I'm a deep sea biologist. My research tends to focus on trying to understand what lives in the world's oceans and then also how we humans are impacting it. One of the emerging industries facing the deep ocean and that could have really great repercussions for life in the deep ocean is deep seabed mining. So it hasn't begun yet, but it could have big changes. And now is the time when many countries, as well as many um, intergovernmental institutions, are putting in place their regulations that will govern these spaces, these ocean spaces, for a long time. And so it's a, a pretty important time in that sort of conversation. I tend to play many different roles in this deep sea mining space. The first and foremost, as a scientist, I'm conducting research in a lot of the areas where deep sea mining may take place, just to try and understand what lives there and, you know, how those communities and ecosystems function. But Dr. Amon also works at the crux of policy and science. She tries to infuse science into policy so that we can manage our oceans better in the future. I do that via a network of experts called the Deep Ocean Stewardship Initiative, or DOSI. And basically, it's a global network that seeks to integrate science and technology and policy and economics and so on to basically advise on ecosystem-based management of resource use in the deep ocean. We are using our deep seas more and more and more. And we want to see that done in as a responsible way as possible. With deep seabed mining, <laughs> we have a really unique opportunity to put in place the rules before any mining has started. And that's, you know, not really been done before on this planet, especially on land. We've always just taken from it without any real thought as to what the impact is going to be. 
Dr. Mon's focus on the flora and fauna of the deep sea may seem very far removed from our day-to-day -day lives, but in reality, the deep oceans represent over 96% of the habitable space on the planet, and its healthy functioning is critical for the well-being of the Earth. Knowing more about that space is super important, and with the mining industry working with scientists to explore how to treat these habitats carefully, there is a mutually beneficial relationship forming. And so it means that there's been a lot of science happening, which is one of the plus sides to this entire industry. But we've been making incredible discoveries. So we found that half of the megafauna rely on the nodules, the exact thing that's going to be removed by mining. So we found that in the east, eastern Clarion Clifton zone, that there tend to be over a thousand species bigger than 0.5 millimeters in size in an area that's 900 square kilometers. So 30 kilometers by 30 kilometers. And astoundingly, 90% of those species, so about 900 in a thousand, are new to science. Okay, that's the kind of level of information that we don't have about the deep sea. These are animals we've never seen before, animals that don't have names. Animals that, much less having names, we don't know how they reproduce, we don't know what they eat, we don't know what role they play in their ecosystem. But what we are learning about these deep ocean communities is mind-blowing. Some corals on seamounts have been found to be over 4,000 years old. And some sponges on seamounts have been found to be over 11,000 years old. That's like twice the age of the wheel, okay? So really, these are old ecosystems. And those sponges and corals also act like trees. They provide habitat for lots of other animals in these habitats. So they're pretty important. And again, for many of these these parts of the deep ocean where there are contract areas leased out, we still don't know the basic biology of what exists in those areas. The science that surrounds these habitats are pivotal to understanding how life evolved on our planet, how these habitats impact our climate and much more. That sounds really dramatic, but it's true. Our deep ocean and our oceans in general play crucial roles in regulating the climate by absorbing heat and sequestering carbon. They play a role in detoxification. They play a role in cycling nutrients. They provide us with crucial resources like um, food, for instance, and potentially in the future, things like medicine and other pharmaceutical bodies. Obviously, we're being faced with this global pandemic, something which is probably going to change the face of humankind, unfortunately. Remember how we mentioned that there was a connection between the deep ocean and the current COVID pandemic? Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, HUI, put out this article that reminded us, you know, that the enzymes that are used in PCRs, polymerase chain reactions, which are absolutely crucial to the tests that are used to diagnose coronavirus and other pandemics. But that test, which is diagnosing coronavirus and being used all over the world in the millions right now, has a part of it which came from a deep sea microbe from hydrothermal vents. Basically, according to the article Dr. Amon is referencing, the microbes found in these vents create special enzymes that remain stable, even in extremely high temperatures. 
With these enzymes recovered from these vent-living microbes, it became possible to revolutionize processes in genetics to make millions of copies of a single DNA sequence in just a few hours. As a result, it became possible to quickly test for viruses, including coronaviruses like SARS and the virus that causes COVID-19. And this is why the image of a giant metal rototiller on the seafloor, destroying any life in its path and removing a lot of the habitat and all the animals that rely on it is so terrifying. We have no idea what unique species or useful genetics we may lose in the overall impact it might have on our planet. And this is why organizations like the International Seabed Authority and cooperative dialogue between scientists and mineral extraction groups are so important. In the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, the proposals going forward for extracting these kinds of resources was, um, with polymetallic nodules, was just to drag a gigantic trawl across the entire deep Pacific and pull up whatever you want. It's essentially strip mining millions of acres of seafloor to get these polymetallic nodules. The alternative to that is having these small robots that are crawling across and having not a, a light touch, but a much lighter touch than, than what the alternative was. With mining cobalt-rich crusts and hydrothermal vents, some of the early proposals involved things that basically looked like giant claw machine balls that were really just absolutely decimating everything around the target and just totally unselective, totally unguided sampling, just essentially catastrophically removing anything in the target area. So these, these robotic systems really are the, the alternative to that kind of impact. And a lot of that has come from the fact that environmentalists and scientists have been working to try to get the best possible regulations in place to regulate deep sea mining before it happens. In the end, if we do want to move to a more sustainable future, we either need to invent wildly different technologies that don't rely on rare earth minerals, or we need to find technologies and processes that can extract and reuse these materials efficiently and effectively. The crux of our story here is that what is happening in the deep sea mining community seems to be going in the right direction. It also needs to continue to be a diverse group of stakeholders representing the interests of all humanity, not just a single company or country. Dr. Amon explains. In international waters, the minerals in that space belong to all of us, all of humankind. It's called the common heritage of humankind or mankind rather. That means that the benefits from those minerals, if exploited, need to be shared with you and I, with everyone on the planet and with everyone that is yet to come on the planet. I'm not really quite sure how you do that, but that's the case. And right now that we're going through this process at the International Seabed Authority, which is drafting the exploitation regulations. So the regulations that will allow mining to happen. As with some intergovernmental processes, they are flawed in some ways. Nothing is perfect. And it means that not all countries in the world are present, unfortunately, in that conversation. But there is hope for anyone who really wants to be involved in this organization and the processes. So if you want to stay involved in the conversation, following the Deep Sea Mining Observer is a great place to start. But the thing that I think a lot of people get surprised by because they don't really think about is that um, UN meetings and UN negotiations are not – private events. They are open. There's a little bit of a bureaucratic process to go through. But if you're interested in being part of the discussion, I mean, the future of the 
sea floor in areas beyond national jurisdiction, which is 60% of the surface of our planet, is currently being decided by 250 people in a room in Jamaica. Um, and you can be in that room if you just do a little bit of paperwork and declare yourself an observer group and send a delegation to Jamaica and be part of that conversation. You know, the barrier to entry is not particularly high. It's not actually that difficult to get involved in these kinds of negotiations and in these kinds of discussions. And it's a very small group of people. And if you are passionate and influential, you don't need to, to change a lot of minds and change a lot of hearts to uh, convince people of your viewpoint. So, you know, I say if you're in the media, all you have to do is email the International Seabed Authority's media desk and say you want to attend, and they'll give you a media pass. If you are part of civil society, if you're part of an NGO, you just have to register as an, for observer status, and you can attend the meetings as well. So really, you can participate in almost the highest level in these kinds of negotiations. So what we learned here today is that the rare earth minerals our technological advancement craves comes from hydrothermal vents that exist all over the ocean, but only make up a small portion of the ocean's seafloor. We learned that an intense effort to mine these areas hasn't happened yet, and that intergovernmental bodies that include scientists and industry members have come together and are working on limiting the environmental and habitat impacts of that future mining while learning way more about these ecosystems. We also learned that these areas are super important to our planet's climate, to our understanding of life on Earth, and even in our fight against diseases like the coronavirus. And ultimately, we learned that we need to get to Jamaica and get in on these sessions. Be part of the conversation. This was a power-packed episode. It was. And in such an important episode, resonating with our last episode on the basic fact that we need way more science in these areas. And we need research expeditions to learn about the world around us and the deepest parts of the ocean. Thanks so much to our guests for joining us, and special thanks to you, our listeners. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on all the places you listen to podcasts. This has been another episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. So I do want to mention this, is that like, just so you know, Dr. Aman and I totally nerded out on Osidax worms and how cool their reproductive strategy is. And for those who haven't listened to it, we covered that in an Ocean Lovin' episode. Love the deep sea. It's so weird and so cool. Wait, I've got an actually fun story about deep sea mining that is so insane it sounds fake. Uh, do you tell? Okay, so... Uh, this sort of boom in the idea about deep sea mining happened around the 70s. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, do you know why? No, why? The CIA. What? <laughs> I'm not joking. The CIA needed a cover to put up like infrastructure to search for a Russian submarine. And so they came up with the idea that their cover for this was going to be deep sea mining. And they got Howard Hughes involved. The story is absolutely nuts. Go look it up on the internet. I promise you it's true. It's... So you're telling me that, you know, the CIA was basically like, ooh, we need to find a Russian sub, but let's just, you know, call it that we're looking for minerals at the bottom of the ocean and then sparked a huge, like, industry? I feel like that needs to be a Coen Brothers movie. 
It, it does sound like a Coen Brothers movie. I would go see that. Coen Brothers. 